guiding questions for Europe's new energy landscape in a time of war, episode 56. Welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast. I'm your host, Michael LaBelle. Here, we speak to the people building a clean energy future. This week, I'm going to reflect on the war of Russia against Ukraine and how the dramatic changes over the past week, week and a half, have really redone and redrawn the energy landscape in Europe. Uh, These are dramatic developments, and I can't really offer, and I think it's just too early to understand all these dramatic changes that have occurred, not since the fall of the Berlin Wall and even the end of World War II have we seen a realignment and the expression of hard power of countries in such a dramatic and you know, powerful way. And I'm just not talking about Russia's military might against Ukraine, but the actions of European countries and the actions of the European Union, and of course, the involvement of the United States too in, in all this. So I don't have any kind of like full analysis of what's going on. And certainly everything's changing by the hour and, and the markets are reacting in different ways. And how the regulations and sanctions are being imposed have different outcomes. So what I'm just trying to capture this week is a reflection on, yes, what we know so far, but but more or less some key questions that are really based in, I would say, the established literature of energy transitions theory, some energy security, and maybe working through that, we can start to develop an agenda for more research into this new world that we find ourselves. Before, the the overall guiding or the crisis mode was about climate change and how we needed to make this transition and phase out fossil fuels to save the planet. And of course, now in Europe, we have this dramatic war right here. And the dramatic actions that have to be taken to ensure that European countries, particularly in the EU, have security of supply, have stable sources, and at the same time, not funding Russia so that Russia can pursue its military agenda. So I'm taking quite a clear line. I'm I'm sitting here in Hungary uh, talking about this. And of course, the war is just right next door in Ukraine. But also the Hungarian government here is kind of, well, yes, they've gone along with EU and what they're doing, but at the same time, trying to remain somewhat neutral is what they say. And I won't go into, into that, but I'll just focus on how energy relations are changing. And basically to do that, there's two specific areas that I'm going to start off with. Uh, first, this, and describe the divisions in Europe. Um, how the post-communist countries have dealt with uh, energy resources from Russia since they were all integrated into this communist sphere, this communist energy system, which another plug for my book about energy cultures definitely looks at this, how Russia and the Soviet Union developed these energy cultures, these ties over years, and then how yeah, Central Eastern European countries have joined the EU, how they've tried or not tried to break off these energy relations. So I'll bring that into the discussion towards the end. But also, of course, we have Western countries and their history with with Soviet and Russian resources. So we describe briefly the resource reliance and technology reliance that 
makes Europe. I mean, the whole thinking in the past was that Europe should be integrated in the energy sector from resources to the energy end use and technologies, and that would help, that would feed into this economic commerce space, the single energy market or the single market, and this would enable peace to occur. And this was established right after World War II, and this is what developed into the European Union we know today, which is essentially the single market, um, the internal market place. And this idea is that commerce, you know, creates these bonds, and I'll get into that in a minute. But then we have these three main categories. I don't know what to call them. Um, maybe others have called them in a better way. I just say three main categories because there's going to have to be a term to describe these. It's energy security, energy justice, and climate change. And this is how I'll organize key questions that should be asked as we proceed. Um, I just have an opening story. It's always good to start with a story, I think. My, my thinking are prompted with questions. So I ask questions, but also, you know, people around me know questions, students. Uh, but I got this really nice question from my daughter the other night. And she said, what will happen if Ukraine joins the EU? She was thinking that maybe there would actually be peace and Russia would have to stop this war. And yeah, I had to think about it because why, why is Ukraine starting their... Why are they applying to join join the EU? And then what protection would this give? And overall, I, I don't think it'd be much. And it's still quite a long process. So I don't have an answer to that. What I realized was that she's 15 years old. And when I was 15 years old, I actually went to the Soviet Union on a trip. I've described this before in previous podcasts. But I never thought that I was actually the same age as her when I went to the Soviet Union in 1989, when everything was falling yeah, when communism was falling apart, and that year there'd be dramatic changes. So we have three decades now of real peace and the growth of commerce, and, and certainly capitalism has flourished, and of course there's downsides to capitalism as well. But overall, Europe that we've had and have experienced, and the peace, I would say even in, in America as well, North America, has really changed the world and really created these ties. We can see now with huge divestment and the sanctions against Russia, the impact that's going to have on, on Russia. And I feel really bad for the Russian people uh, basically being just cut off from the, from the rest of the world just because Putin wants to do some crazy war. Okay, back to energy. I, I only have a few comments that I'll insert more or less like that as we go along, but uh, my main concern is to stick with the energy area because that's what I, I can talk about. Okay, so the first area I just want to bring up is the gas bridge. And this is really important to talk about because the Soviet Union built this gas bridge to Western Europe. I have things, uh, Gustav Sinsen's book right on my table. I'm writing a review about it to finish it. And it is about Russia's gas, gas bridge. And the idea there was the Soviet Union worked with Austria and Germany. And it started very slow. They started with small quantities. But they built up this relationship to send gas, which was just starting to be discovered in, in Russia, to Austria first, then, then Germany. And they built up these pipelines. And of course, uh, the Soviets were short of skills, like for pumps and for the, the metal pipes as well. So they needed to import those in order to export the gas. 
And of course, they got hard currency at that time. That was very important for the Soviet Union. So through this, the relationship was built up. Okay, we could we definitely have this, this West. We had the Iron Curtain with West Germany and Austria being outside of it. And so this is how th these relations began to form on resources and even technology was the export of gas. And within the, we would say, the communist sphere of influence, the satellite countries, Hungary, Poland, um, the Baltic countries, which, yeah, definitely part of the Soviet Union, Baltic countries. But, but there, the whole energy system was integrated, certainly from the core region, these gas pipelines, nuclear technology. So it wasn't just resources, it was also technology and nuclear technology that tied Eastern European countries directly to the Soviet Union, the Warsaw Pact countries. And because of that, later, when communism fell in 1989 and 1990, then these, this infrastructure, of course, remained in place. And so as many years in each country over time has taken different approaches about how and whether to continue to use, for example, the gas from, from Russia or use the nuclear technology that was the Soviets. And they've made different decisions. I'll just say that's also in my book, <laughs> Energy Cultures. Uh, and I look at three case studies, Hungary, Poland, and Lithuania. And the Lithuanian case is probably the most interesting, I think, for the discussion because they really saw the dangers of relying on Russian gas, and so they built an LNG terminal. They had a nuclear power plant Visagnius, um, in Visagnius, um, and that, that was shut down for EU membership. But there was different efforts made to diversify away from uh, Russia and Lithuania because they didn't want the political influence. Here in Hungary, Hungary, has, the Orban government has chosen to maintain and, I would say, build even stronger ties with Russia just because of the cheap energy. They can get cheaper gas, and they, they're building this Paksh 2 nuclear power plant with Russian technology, and they're still defending that even today, even though they've agreed to different um, measures at the European Parliament level within Hungary, they're definitely still promoting their ties to Russia uh, because of these energy relations. So this is, this is okay, it's my area of research, and I see things through an energy lens, but when it comes out, we really, like, these countries are really tied through their energy resources and technologies, and it's really important to remember this. This is the basis of many relationships uh, for, between countries. Then we also have, so the title was the gas bridge, right? And this is kind of well known that this is that Western Europe, Eastern Europe tied with this gas bridge. But of course, we have the term of gas bridge as a bridging fuel for climate change, right? The idea there is that we use, we use gas as a lower, we'll call it like this, lower carbon fossil fuel that emits, I know there's a lot of science on this and methane emissions and all this, but just let me give the overall narrative, okay, on this at least, is that gas emits less CO2, uh, lower than coal, oil, and, and so therefore it actually should be promoted because it helps balance out renewable energy. Different people have different views and maybe we shouldn't use gas at all, but nonetheless, gas is labeled as a bridging fuel. So, we have this gas bridge, 
and what the EU is going to have to decide on, and this is actually up to member countries themselves, is whether to blow up this gas bridge, both the Russian gas bridge and this climate gas bridge. For Germany, it seems like they want to build more LNG terminals, two more, more gas storage facilities. Uh, Hungary's definitely in this gas, um, pro-gas movement. And so it's going to be interesting to see how gas may not be phased out, but where does this gas come from? And I'll, I'll get into that because it becomes much more costly if it's not cheap. That's, that's a, you know, in quotes, cheap Russian gas. So, so overall, just to summarize then, is that if we want to blow up this gas bridge, we have to kind of consider how, how Russian gas is sold into Europe in the short term because it's still being bought over the long, medium to long term. What is that? I don't know, two to five years, 10 years out. It's going to take more time to move away from the Russian gas for the European countries, for those countries that actually want to move away from Russian gas. Hungary has already stated it does not. Maybe other countries see the, the benefits of lower price gas that's not LNG coming into, into the market because they view that they can't afford more expensive gas. What is interesting, though, and I just want to bring this up, this is in a Financial Times article, is that the market is shunning Russian oil. So even just without sanctions against the oil industry in, in Russia, about not buying, being able to buy Russian oil, companies actually are not buying Russian oil. So the, Russian, uh, the barrel per oil is down to $18 because no one wants to buy Russian oil. So... Um, yeah, we have we have this kind of I would say this this existing gas bridge, existing fuels in Russia, and now the question is how quickly can the European Union countries and other countries move away from the energy resources they're so dependent on because of this interlinkage between between countries. So the idea now then is in my overall framework is how can Europe build a just energy transition, and I'll get into like energy justice in a minute, but this is really the idea. This is definitely one of the key lo- or slogans for the EU is building a just energy transition. This is what they like to talk about. And again, we have the three main themes, energy security, energy justice, and climate justice. And I have a really nice article from this article from, or a nice quote from this article from the Financial Times about Germany's defense industry. It's transformed Germany's putting in 100 billion euros to a fund to remilitarize themselves, basically. Within this question, though, it's the role that gas plays in climate protection. And I have this nice quote. It's not just a question of climate protection now, like where they get their energy. It's a question of national security. And this is how we have to reframe this. And this is quite interesting because we always talk about energy justice, climate change, and energy security is in there, but national security is less so. So what we need to do, and I've done a bit of research on this, kind of looked around at different authors on this, this question of what is national security and how is energy security brought into it? Because we need to differentiate between, I would say, security of supply, which is more or less, we'll just say the flow or the assurance that there's going to be this resource or these, this electricity or this gas consistently. Like it's predictable. So that's the energy security of supply. 
energy security is much more focused. Yeah, exactly about what's happening now is, is are your energy resources secure in a much more hard power way, in a slightly militarized way? So does the state need to project or use its military to ensure energy security? And it overlaps then with this national security question. And here I, I found some, some interesting articles and, yeah, with people I know, so I'll have to follow up with them. But uh, maybe, maybe first we'll go to Daniel Jurgen. I don't know him. But we'll, where in 2006, he was writing here in times of the, the Second Gulf War and framing that. He goes, in a world of increasing interdependence, energy security will depend much on how countries manage their relations with one another, whether bilaterally or within multi, multilateral frameworks. So for him, at that time in 2006, he wrote this, was that, yeah, the world is increasing interdependence, and this is energy interdependence, right? So energy security is really about how you manage relations with another country. And that could be bilateral, bilateral relations with Russia. Gas, for example, was always, they had bilateral contracts or within multilateral frameworks. And this would be, you know, EU-Russian relations. And this is really important because then this places energy security as part of also national security or, you know, I would say even EU, EU is an inter- interesting institution because it's a composition of countries rather than just a national sovereign state. So kind of have to reinterpret what, what is national security and international relations for this entity. But also Anthony Frogart, uh, he's written this article from 2013 and also something from 2009, I see. And he was looking at the energy security climate nexus. And this acknowledges that higher gas usage needs to be paired with diversification to outweigh security concerns of a dominant supplier. Okay, so basically, yeah, if we're going to rely on Russia as the dominant supplier and gas at this time in 2009, 2013, gas was seen as this bridging fuel, so it was good for the environment. So if gas is a good thing for the environment and we're going to use it, then we definitely have to be concerned and consider the security, energy security arrangements with using gas. So this is the overlap of climate and energy security. There is, I would say, the energy security is often framed, or the use of energy as these four A's. This is called availability, affordability, accessibility, and acceptability. And I think... And I'm joined on um, Professor Chirps, he's my colleague, and also Jessica Jewell's article from 2014. And they are kind of re-questioning what does energy security mean. And it's a short article, so they don't kind of come to key conclusions that would give us a, a guiding thread, but they give us some questions. This is why I'm, I've decided to, one of the reasons I decided to make this episode about questions rather than answers. And they draw on David Baldwin's key questions um, in the area of security studies. And when a country is thinking about security and threats, he asks, one, security for whom? So who, who, who actually gets more secure in these policies? 
security for which values. So this is kind of a values-based judgment. And he kind of calls out um, security or national security as BS because you can use national security for anything. But also he asks, from what threats? So it's also important to identify the threats, the values, say, a country might have, and who actually becomes much more secure in the actions that might need to be done. And that's a national security perspective. But of course, that has to be translated into energy security, which is a resource or a, a supply of something. And certainly, more traditionally, oil would be seen in, in terms of energy security, not so much gas or electricity, but now it's, it's really important. And Tripp and Jewell, they, they suggest from this 2014 article, which energy, energy systems are vital? So you got to consider the medium and long-term risks and how that affects resiliency of the system, the prices, and they also ask security for whom. Security for whom. So there's, there's a bit more there. And if you're not totally convinced, I completely agree. So I think it's, this is what I've been able to find. I'm sure there's other sources, other literature out there that looks at energy security uh, in a... Um, in a much more focused way. And I know there are some publications uh, on this, but I think the term energy security to assess the breakdown of energy relations and this, this interlinkage of energy systems in Europe, there doesn't, there, I, I, I'm just imagining there's not a publication like that. And reframing energy security in the context and to understand what has just happened and what is unfolding at a daily basis of the splintering within Europe really needs to be done. Um, and how I'm approaching that, I'll be doing some interviews on this in the future, so there'll be a, definitely a lot more coming out and some written work of mine too. But we have this energy security question now that has to be asked. My question is, does Europe have a common price and position towards gas security after Russia's occupation of Ukraine. Or they haven't really occupied it. I was just thinking forward. I should erase this part, but I'll keep it in there. Yeah, surprisingly enough, so far, they still can't seem to get their act together. Anyways, maybe maybe they'll just keep attacking the, the country and they don't actually have the resources to occupy it. Let's hope. But rather than holding the East-West division of post-communist versus Western states. So, uh, in my previous research and in, in the book, there's this clear division between Western European countries, you could say maybe the founding members of the EU, and post-communist countries, countries that were part of this Warsaw Pact, and how they perceived both gas security and energy security. There's different views of that, where definitely Poland, we could say, was warning everyone, hey, don't use Russian gas, because, and Nord Stream is a horrible idea, Nord Stream 2 definitely is a, is a treacherous and traitorous thing to build, that was the Polish position, and look, they basically turned out to be right, they turned out to be right, we'll just say that way. And now, my question then, does the EU as a whole have this common position that's much more of a Eastern European position where they don't trust Russia, that gas is actually a form of hard power rather than like a form of soft power. This is one of the key questions that needs to be asked about it. And how does that change? 
And if not, you know, so basically my other question is, what are the commonalities and differences between these different regions? So a lot of interviews will need to be done to ask and answer this question. But maybe in one sense, it feels like, yeah, that's a hard question to answer. But under the current environment and this war, state of war, maybe it's not that hard to answer or that hard to flesh out the differences and the commonalities. I don't know. Be interesting. Yeah. What are the alternatives is really the other question when we talk about energy security. So if Chirp and um, Jewel talk about which energy systems are vital and security for whom, then we really have to talk about, yeah, the resiliency and the prices because price is a really important consideration. What are the political and economic choices governments have about, say, diversification to other gas sources or just not using gas in certain areas for certain purposes, I don't know, like heating, for example. A big claim is to heat, heat with heat pumps rather than with gas. Okay, but there's a cost there, and there's a cost to the homeowners. So who's going to pay for that? That's the big question. And that, that is where these international relations come in handy to understand this interdependency that's developed in Europe and the integration of the energy system with Russian gas to heating of homes at, a, at an affordable price. And now that's broken. And so what, is, what do countries in Europe decide to do? Keep using gas as, as a heating fuel? Or are they going to move to a different technology? Okay, and then we get into the area of energy justice. Remember, we're talking about energy security, energy justice, and climate change. So energy justice... Um, okay, I'm just bringing in my, my writing, the Radical Energy Justice Framework that we just put out an article. I'll put a link into it uh, for this show. But um, for me, it makes sense. Um, looking at energy justice in a radical way, because this radical framing highlights the structural injustices while also identifying ways to change the structural power relations. So what makes it radical? It's more this like, ontological, theoretical concept of radicalism, which, ask, which asks, like, who benefits? Okay, I'm back. I was disturbed. But I want to summarize again the key questions for energy justice, because it asks, what is the role of gas in Europe's just energy transition? And we need to understand energy justice. What is a just energy transition with the Euro within the European Union, Union's gas sector? How can conflict gas be excluded from a just energy transition? And what is the moral framing of buying Russian gas while UK, Ukraine fights for independence? So we need to broaden out our perspective of energy justice as just a, a question or a framing to see through the energy transition and step back and just like, looking at conflict diamonds or the role that oil plays in corrupt countries and the injustices caused by, yeah, what would be traditionally associated with oil and conflict over oil and petrol states. Then we need to ask those same questions about the energy transition where it has this, both this conflict military uh, framing and at the same time, understanding that a just transition is more than just, I would say, the benefits of equality to access and affordability, but also what is the role of this natural resource we call gas 
in the conflict itself. And I think that's one of the questions we really haven't grappled with. We've looked at it more from an environmental perspective, climate change perspective, but we haven't addressed it in a conflict perspective. And that's going to be really important going forward now, at least in the framings of Europe. And I would say there's certainly probably cases around the world where this conflict gas perspective could really play an important role. And then climate change, the other third key theme. Uh, and here I don't have a lot developed on this, but of course uh, we need to start looking. And here when, in terms of climate change, I think maybe the benefits, particularly if for those that want gas to be phased out, th there can be this even stronger argument about the price of using gas compared to another resource. Terry, uh, yeah, Terry uh, Bros, I did an interview with him back in December. You can look at that episode. And, you know, that's his point is that actually high gas prices may not be a bad thing because they're going to prompt other technologies and other resources to come into the marketplace and be affordable in comparison. So, of course, if there's a shift away from Russian pipeline gas, then more LNG is going to be necessary in Europe, and that's just going to increase the price. So really, we need to start looking in terms of both climate change and even in terms of energy poverty, poverty and affordability, the replacement for gas, because it may just be too expensive to keep using. And so what are the you know, technological alternatives to using gas. And this comes into play for, for climate change. And finally, um, I'm going to prom promote my perspective again about a new energy culture, because energy cultures are really created through these spatial relationships, through the infrastructure, scaled relationships of rules and regulations, and just how international relations and our domestic relations are all interconnected. And this is very important because we use these resources, we drive down the road in, in our cars, or we take public transportation, or we heat our homes to a certain level, and all this is pretty unique to each country and how these social spatial relations are expressed. And basically, if we think about the energy transition and climate change, we're meant to be changing our habits anyways, and how we do things and what we use and how we're using energy, how we're producing it. And this is definitely a deep cultural shift that has to occur. And we can kind of broaden that out and frame it within the terms of an energy culture. So when we start to see things as these cultural relationships and expressions of social practices, this is culture. And when it's related to energy, it's an energy culture. So definitely we need to break the dependency from energy, from Russian resources and technologies. There's going to be a full reorient orientation of EU countries away from Russia. So what are the replacements? What are the habits that are going to be changed? What are the relationships that are going to be changed? Uh, no longer is Europe going to use cheap coal and gas from Russia. So what's going to be replacing this? Actually, that's a good point. I haven't used that much. Is Actually, a lot of coal comes from Russia into, into the EU, certainly for Poland. So if that's, that's cut off, you know, what, what's the replacement? So overall, the industry needs to change, but also society needs to change as well. 
And so my main question in this framing is, what is Europe's new energy culture in a militarized Europe? I think the biggest takeaway, if I can give it, is what are the is the role that military and hard power plays in the discussion and the research of energy resources and energy systems within the energy transition climate change discussion. And this role of military has been done slightly, but not to a large extent. For example, energy efficiency is a great area to do research and to frame in terms of new energy security as well. Certainly what happens in a time of war, we need to conserve. The idea then is energy efficiency, besides being this boring area that policymakers don't really like because it's a bit messy or it's hard to do. Anyways, there's just not enough state support and investment to energy efficiency, for certainly for buildings. And actually, this should be the biggest area to promote energy security is energy efficiency. There are some big policies in the Fit for 55 about energy efficiencies, but mainly these are targeted at poor, low-income households for helping them. But really, the scheme should be much broader if the whole idea is to reduce gas use and if gas is really expensive. Then energy efficiency for all sectors of society, for all homes, for all buildings, should be really at the top of the policy agenda. And if you know, the alternatives just keep spending more money for the supply of gas and for using gas, that actually that money would be much better invested. I mean, it's already worthwhile to invest in energy efficiency, but if the price of fossil fuels is so much higher, then the payback is so, so much there, basically. So with that, let's just conclude. We need to build a new energy bridge. There was the vision of the Soviet Union is back on the agenda for Putin. He likes to think of this as bring back the Soviet Union and crazy. That didn't work for the world either. Now it's just so interesting to see the, the rise of the EU as a strong entity that, okay, it's not matched by military might, but they've definitely moved into this military area as well. We really need to assess and reassess what the role of energy security plays in relationship to the directives and the governance system of the EU itself. A just energy transition must address resource extraction to use, that we know, but we also need to pay attention. There's a lot of news about oligarchs. Well, how did they get all that money? A lot of that came from energy as well, oil and gas from Russia, that EU countries have been more than happy to buy. All that wealth didn't come from just selling, I don't know, you could probably sell a lot of things, make a lot of money, but a lot of that money is from the, is from the energy sector. So what really needs to happen is not just spending money on energy efficiency or new types of energy resources and technology, but a greater willingness for transparency to exist in the energy system itself. Some of this money is coming from the EU or national funds, then full transparency of how that money ends up and which companies are supported and win tenders actually definitely needs to occur. Yeah, just some questions to prompt our thinking. Yeah, in this strange, strange world and dramatically new world we find ourselves in, I think maybe the point now is not to seek answers, or we can seek answers, but I think the first step is to ask questions and then take our time in answering those questions over the next few months and certainly years. But next few months, I think some questions can be answered and which will lead to more questions that will need to be answered.
So it never ends. So I want to thank you very much for listening. And I really, uh, I always get some emails from people that listen to the podcast and they get in touch. I just want to say thank you. And if you share this on social media and on LinkedIn or our, on our Twitter account, I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. And I don't know, I, should, I, I need like a sign off I don't know, energy, like may the energy be with you or something. I'll have to think about it. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We produce the My Energy 2050 podcast to learn about cutting-edge research and the people building our clean energy system. If you enjoyed this episode or any episode, please share it. The more we spread our message of the ease of an energy transition, the faster we can make it. You can follow us on LinkedIn, where we are the most active on the My Energy 2050 webpage, or on Twitter and Facebook. I'm your host, Michael LaBelle. Thank you for listening to this week's episode.